Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, the weekly podcast for the incurably bookish. We will be talking to authors and creatives from across the world of publishing and discussing the books they have loved. Looking for a recommendation? Then look no further. Head to your favourite cosy spot and let us pick out your next favourite book. On the podcast this week, we warmly welcome debut novelist Kashaya J. Kabushani. Kashaya's hotly anticipated first novel, I Will Greet the Sun Again, is published on the 3rd of August. It is a beautiful novel about family, queer adolescence, and the multifaceted nature of identity. And while it is a story unafraid to face difficult subject matter, just like the poem from which it takes its title, it is ultimately a novel filled with love. Kashaya, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Jack, that's such a lovely way to describe the novel. Thank you. It's so lovely to be here. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Now, am I right? Um, Mostly books. We're a small bookshop in a town called Abingdon, which is just south of Oxford, kind of nestled in the middle of uh, England. It's a rather grim day here, actually. We've had some nice weather, but it's a bit rainy. Now, am I right in saying you're joining us from, is it LA today? I'm actually uh, born and raised in LA. Part of the novel takes place in LA. Uh, I live in, in San Francisco, so I'm joining you from San Francisco from an equally grim and cloudy day. Yes, I've heard the weather in San Francisco is notorious for tourists sort of arrive thinking, oh, California, you know, it's in our imagination, it's, oh, it's going to be gorgeous, but actually it's quite a foggy, wet place, isn't it? Yes, yeah, cold. I, you know, I've, I, I, I've spent, uh, I spent several years living in New York and I, and I tell friends, I don't know if it's because of the fog or, or what it is, but I, have been more cold here in San Francisco than the winters of New York. So that that goes to show you. And I realise now I'm probably being a bit of a stereotype by being British and I've already started by talking about the weather, which is, um, yeah, which is t- terribly, terribly boring of me. Because <laughs> we're here um, to talk about your novel. Now, this is your first novel and it's soon to be at the time of recording. It's not out here just yet in the UK. But how long have you been with this story, with this novel? Because it must be such a... Uh, an exciting and important time for you to kind of know that it's just on the cusp of kind of entering into into the world and and finding its its readership um how long have you been with this story now yeah jag it's so surreal uh as you say we're we're approaching publication and i'm just thrilled for it to reach readers uh if if i would be so lucky and to answer your question i think of it twofold so there's kind of to use a boring term, there's like the professional aspect of it, which when I say that, I mean about five years ago when I decided I wanted to move to New York, I wanted to go to graduate school to study writing in order to really give myself uh, the best chance to write this book and then go through the process of finding an agent and, and, and having it sent to editors, et cetera, et cetera. So that's been a process of about five years. And but on a more personal level, I think this story has been with me for as early as my first memories. And I and I say mm. that because I remember as a very young person, you know, the, the novel is written in a young person's voice and it all takes place in the immediate present. And I remember as a very small child, when certain things were happening in my life, I remember narrating those things to myself as though I was my first reader and and it was a way to make sense but also uh, celebrate the things that were that were happening and whether it was being in Iran or 
being in Los Angeles, falling in love and meeting people, you know, all, all those things that sort of take place in, in the book. So yeah, in, in some ways, five years, and in some ways, there's a process of, of 30 years with this book. Absolutely, as, as I'm sure it is for most novelists and for, for writers, that in some way, whether it's their first or whether it's, you know, their 15th, that story has, you know, been a kind of part of them for a long time. And I love you describing it sort of being a young person kind of almost internally narrating your life, because I think we all have our own different kind of internal worlds and how we process the world as well, how we process what's happening to us, you know, the world around us. And I'm sure for many, that kind of narration is a way of taking control of that and processing that. Yeah, yeah, Jack, that's that's absolutely right. I I, I think when I look at my the younger version of myself, I, I think there was this insistence to announce, and again, this was all happening, as you say, internally, but this insistence to to make it feel that it, it in fact it was all real i think often there's this divide between what we observe adults and the way they take in life and it feels at at great odds uh, for us as as young people and and but there's a great sense of empowerment to narrate and to to claim and to announce to oneself this i am in fact real these things are in fact real Absolutely. It's kind of like, a, I suppose, an extension of, I feel these days you hear a lot of people talk about uh, being the protagonist of like, of, you know, <laughs> and I think, I think there's so many different elements of that, of, but, you know, I think part of that comes from the idea of, you know, if you kind of frame it that way, I don't know, it sometimes in some situations can be quite helpful to kind of think, you know, no, this is maybe this is happening because it's part of my wider story. It might be, I don't know, it might be good right now or it might be bad right now, but it, it's part of a kind of overall um, narrative as well. Can I ask you about that? So for you as as a reader, what, because I'm, I'm often curious when I'm doing my own reading and, and certainly when I'm doing my writing, for you, what's that line between being as you say, to borrow that phrase, the protagonist of one story and, 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 then, and then just quite frankly, just like slipping into narcissism. You know, I feel like that's a delicate, that's a delicate line. Oh, absolutely. I think the conversation around that whole sort of protagonist mentality is, you know, people talk about that some people have that protagonist mentality at a time when being a human means kind of a collective experience and actually, you know, going through life kind of constantly being like, no, everything is kind of gravitating around me. I mean, that that's going to end you up in some, you know, very difficult situations yeah. <laughs> or at least leave you being someone thinking I'm the protagonist while everyone's thinking, no, you're the antagonist at the moment because <laughs> yes, yes. because we're finding that very hard. But in terms of as a reader as well, is that what you you're asking yeah, in terms of yeah, like how uh, I think we're reading a book that's from a specific character's point of view. I think no, I think uh, obviously with third person you can sort of skim across the surface mm -hmm. and kind of dip in and out of different viewpoints. But I think from first person, I think it's just very immersive. I don't think it ever stims over unless the character is being portrayed as as a narcissist Correct. i don't think it ever goes in that direction i think instead you're just aware of you're taking the back seat and you're kind of observing the driver as they kind of navigate the landscape around them which is um you know as a reader a, a really wonderful experience yeah i find i find it to be a miracle that we continue to have 
and are very fortunate to have these first person narratives and so many writers, their ability to take you into their experience to include you, although it is a first person narrative and, and it might be very specific to their identity. But I just, anytime I come across these first person, I'm so amazed how included I feel as a reader, mm. even if they are, as, as we're saying, like ultimately the protagonist and we're living in their consciousness. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, as you said, no, uh, no one character's experience can be true to you. I mean, I think it'd be terrifying if you picked up a novel and you think, wait, is this actually my, you know, life? But, you know, you come across characters that, you know, you think that experience can't really speak to anything I've gone through. But I think what's always amazing is that that doesn't mean that you also don't find many points where you think, oh, goodness, you know, we're all the same, you know, mm -hmm. the... It, it, there's many experiences which aren't unique. You think they are when they're happening to you. Um, and there's a great comfort in that. I think it's one of the comforts of reading is actually realizing that it doesn't matter kind of what the experience you're, we can feel alone sometimes, but actually we, we're not. What you're experiencing at any given moment is, is being shared by, a, you know, many other people, if that makes sense. The gift of literature right there. You just articulated it. Yeah. Yeah. We're not alone. And in terms of you as a reader, have you have you always been attracted to the written word, you know, from a young age or, or did it come later on for you? What's been your um, relationship with it? Yeah, I, I came to reading, you know, I'm, I'm 31. So when I say late in my late life, I know that I'm just kind of makes me sound like a jackass as if I'm like, you know, in my 70s. But I think as a reader, when I look at other writers or or or, or just other friends of mine who, you know, went to university, blah, 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 blah. They grew up around books. Um, maybe their parents were readers. Maybe their you know other family members were readers. And for me, I wonder. I, I try not to make it too much about class, but I was raised by a single mom, and and there was a lot of just struggle. And and so in my mind, there wasn't really the luxury to have books or or to read. But when I was in university, and it was really getting a job at a bookstore, um, which. I guess there was some part of me that intuited that I would want to be a reader, want to be a writer. I, at the time, I thought, well, it's better than serving, you know, lattes as I was doing or working restaurants as I was doing. It felt more of a comfort to be around books. And and then what, did I, what ended up happening is I, all the money that I earned went right back to the store to, to buy the books. So that's when I came to reading was uh, at about 21, 22 years old. And I really had to, I know this may sound silly, and I don't mean it in a literal way. I, I was I was literate, I could read, but the practice of reading, mm. choosing what to read, how to read, all of those things I had to sort of teach myself. And it was, it was painful because the desire I had for literature that clearly was inside of me and, and wasn't yet explored that desire was at such odds with my ability to do it. And it's a very uncomfortable place to be in. But it, I didn't give up on it, and I'm, and I'm glad that I did it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's its own muscle, really, that needs to be exercised. And, you know, I find as someone, you know, I work in a bookshop, but I also regularly go through sort of, you know, 
periods, fallow periods, where for whatever reason that muscle is, I don't know, maybe a bit exhausted or a bit, you know, and despite the fact that, yes, I can pick up a book and I can read the words, I'm not reading, if that makes sense. It's not not the same experience. And I think that's totally fair to bring up class because other authors that we've spoken to, it's very interesting to see the difference. You know, some people are surrounded by books from a very early age and, you know, many of themselves say, you know, oh, actually, I was very lucky because I was in a a household where books are expensive, you know, even coming from a bookshop, you know, books are, they can be hard to come by in certain circumstances. And I think, you know, you mentioned entering the bookshop and that was part of the process is it's that proximity to books, which I think not everyone has from a young age. I didn't read until later on. So I think that's a very, a, a very common experience as well. When I was looking at my favorite children's novel, for instance, it got me so emotional because I realized I've never read, it sounds crazy, but I've never read a children's novel. And and I was talking to some loved ones about this who grew up in a very different class setting than, than me. And, and they reminded me that part of reading as a young person or even returning to children's novels as an older person, part of that is initiated by being read to, which I can't think of a greater act of empathy and kindness and and love than an older person reading to a younger person. I mean, when I think about how warm and and sensational that must feel to fall asleep to, to stories, I'm so glad that that's part of, it seems like, our world's culture, regardless of, of where you grow up. I mean, it's, it's storytelling at its very purest form, but I didn't... I didn't have that and and it's fair to say I missed out on a lot because of that and and I missed out on a lot of great children's books. Mm. Um so your question has sort of sparked a desire in me to to go out and 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 find those, you know, mm. those books that so many people covet and love and and to and to read them for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's never too, we we put these categories on the books of, you know, children's literature, or, you know, we put certain age ratings on them. But, you know, many people I've spoken to, and many readers would agree that, you know, that's just a kind of vague guidance. And actually, there's a great joy to be had from, you know, you know, reading children's books um, as a, you know, as an adult. So that world is still there for you. It hasn't moved on, you know, it's, yeah, (laughs) it's still, it's there waiting for you. What was one of the first books that you sort of remember reading and, you know, had an impact on you or you remember thinking, oh, okay, there's there's something here that really that really interests me and, and brings me in. When I realized that words on the page had an ability to really help me become who I felt I wanted to be, for me, it, that was initiated by my studies in, in philosophy. And, and I say that because I, it was all this sort of gradual process. And so it was like in university, I was studying philosophy, you know, reading Descartes and reading Nietzsche and and grappling with these like big ideas, blah, 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 blah. blah. And then once I got to that, to the bookstore and I realized, okay, maybe I, maybe it's literary nonfiction that I want to more gravitate towards. And around that time, the book that, that comes to mind that has really stuck with me and was so instructive and is Just Kids by Patti Smith. And the reason I think of that book is because not only is the the prose gorgeous, but the the story of 
her as a young person moving to New York City to become an artist, but having no idea how to, and mm. and then meeting other artists and reading Robert Maplethorpe and creating this relationship and being part of that milieu in the, what was that? The, yeah, late 60s, early 70s. I, as a young person reading that, thought to myself, and God bless youthful naivete, I was like, I can do exactly that. I'm going to move to New York City. I just have to find a park bench in Central Park. Yeah. And as long as I pray to the gods hard enough, I will I will find my way as an yeah. artist. <laughs> I love that. I love that, particularly because I don't know, you know, if New York is anything like, I don't know, London, but the difference between the 60s and, you know, the, the 2000s in terms of just the property market. Economic, and it just... Yeah. <laughs> the idea that you could just you know people talk about that now so many artists now that oh i moved to london in the 60s and i rented a place for you know 20 pence a week or something for we and pay it, for coffee now you know yeah, it's oh, like oh yeah you're doing well if you can buy coffee let alone have a apartment in the west village in new york city or the east village or yes anything like yeah, that. yeah yeah or you know or even worse like i walked into this you know i don't know big sort of like whether a newspaper or I don't know, the literary supplement or something. Oh, and I just asked for a job and they said, yeah, sure. And it's just you know, all this yeah, stuff yeah, that you're yeah. like, the world doesn't work like that anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I love this idea that you thought this will be my life. Reading that book, you thought I yeah. can do this. Yeah. And very quickly, unfortunately, I imagine found out that that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't the case. Yeah. Uh, what I will tell you though, Jack is so yeah, clearly, uh, Patty Smith, 70s, very different for Gashi Hart in, in, in 2018. But what did fall into alignment was I, you know, I rented a shoebox apartment and had and found a job at a restaurant um, to work as a as a waiter. And I remember specifically thinking this to myself, particularly because of of what you're talking about, economics and whatnot. I remember I felt I was the luckiest person in the world that I had a roof over my head and I had work and anything else in between uh, I could do. And, and that's, I guess, the draw of these, of these great cities, whether it's London or New York or, or San Francisco or Paris is like, if you're fortunate enough to have work that allows you to pay your rent, then you can, I remember just taking the train downtown to places that I would never be able to afford to live in, but just sitting mm. there and being amazed by the diversity and having the context to know of the great writers. I mean, I remember walking by a brownstone where James Baldwin lived oh, wow. and, and he is just a hero of mine. Yeah. And I remember mm. just looking there. I was like, I'm in the same city as this person. And, as you said, vastly different realities economically, but I was still I was still there, and for me that was that was that was enough. Mm. And yes, because of course, um, I, th I think I've got the yes, uh, James Baldwin is one of your sort of front quotes. Yeah, yeah. What, what do we call that in, in the epigraph? Yeah, he has played a great influence, um, not just the work of his that I that I read, but also the courage to do it. Uh, mm. I think when I listen to his interviews and, and read his works, there was this beautiful rage that he had and, and brought to the page. Um, and also 
this insistence to to make meaning of his of his own experiences and um that was really instrumental for me mm. yes and he seems he seems to be one of those those writers and thinkers that i feel like it doesn't matter what the what the subject being discussed is but there's always seems to be a james baldwin quote that you know kind of aligns for it of any kind of conversation because you know as well as a writer you know he, you know he was a sort of a, a thinker, a kind of public intellectual. And it never ceases to amaze me, but there always seems to be a, you know, a really beautiful, succinct, straight to the point, you know, no, no kind of messing around James Baldwin quote for most kind of conversations or, or discussions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Are there any sort of fiction books that you remember in your kind of early explorations of, of reading that you remember sort of standing, standing out for you? This goes back to your point or our, our conversation at the very beginning about reading narratives that on the surface or even as the narrative un unfolds doesn't align with our, as a reader, with our personal experiences, but brings great solace. And I, Atessa Moshfeg's uh, debut, no, no, it wasn't her debut, her second novel, I believe it, it, it would be uh, Eileen. I remember mm. reading that. And being so comforted by it, and I know it's strange to say because you know a lot of grim things happen mm. in the book, and the way the narrator describes herself is there's a great element of of disgust that's invoked mm. as, when she, as she sees herself. And I mean, on one hand, it was both so entertaining for me and so compelling uh, as a reader, which I guess is you know a, a, a part of what we hope to do is as writers is to is to entertain our readers but it was also it felt so quietly comforting to see a writer depict characters in ways that perhaps others wouldn't be willing to do and and mm. and, and it made me to your point from earlier feel so much less alone in the way that i saw myself in the way that i saw my own life mm. yes yes she's a she's an interesting i haven't read eileen but um I have it is read coming my, to the screen, so you. you it is, have isn't a it? Chance. So I, I yeah. need to. Yes, I need to. Uh, uh, yeah, read it before before it does. But I have read my year of rest and relaxation, which is you know another sort of difficult central character, who you know on the surface has basically every privilege Im imaginable, like independently wealthy, uh, talks about sort of being beautiful all the time. So very little to almost enamor or kind of make you feel oh yes that's like me but i don't know that it, it, it it's such an interesting read because you find yourself sort of sucked in and again there's an element of looking at those kind of messier sides of humanity you know that those crevices in people those kind of dark corners that there is just something fascinating and something yes even if it doesn't directly relate to you something incredibly comforting and reassuring in in reading those stories yeah, and and maybe I'm with that with that title as well. And maybe I'm filling in or connecting dots that aren't meant to be connected. But I, it feels like a great act of compassion um, when a, a writer chooses to inhabit those crevices, as you're saying, that are very, I don't know, unappealing to mm. on, on the surface level, or you know, don't speak directly to one's experience. I, um. And 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 Atessmochvig isn't the only one. I mean, there are there are mm. several writers who do that, and I find um, I find great comfort in that. 
And in terms of sort of bringing you forward to the, you know, to the present day, your book is soon to come out in the UK. Forgive me, is it out in the US yet? Or uh, so we'll we'll we're uh, we're just about a day or two behind the UK. I think we're we're publishing August first. Right. Okay. Um, so also on that, I know sometimes it can either be pretty much spot on, or sometimes there can be a sort of couple couple of months difference between the two. So yes, your book is soon to kind of enter the world and become its own thing. And for you today, as you know, the writer, uh, do, do you still have time for reading? Do you still find yourself reading, you know, as you were writing or as the publication process is, is coming up? Jack, I don't, I don't stand a chance as a writer if I'm not reading. Uh, I know I, when I listen to other interviews with writers, um, especially writers who have been doing it for quite some time, I remember hearing, for instance, uh, Zadie Smith say that she looks forward to finishing a manuscript because she knows she'll then return back to to reading or, or catch up on titles that she's been wanting to read. And and um, I admire that because I imagine you're really uh, focused in and, and locked in, in in your own work. Um, but for me, I'm I'm kind of a leech. I need to I need to borrow um, mm. from other people in order to gain momentum for what I'm working on myself. And so I'm, you know, there are some periods when I'm, where I'm of course reading more, but I, yeah, I, I, ever since that book, so I haven't really looked back. I've just keep my, keep my face between covers. And in terms of the, you know, last maybe six months, let's say, what books have really, really stood out for you? I'm gonna look at my stack here. I also, I, I should say uh, poetry is incredibly important to me mm. but in most contemporary uh or so so i i never read doris lessing's the golden notebook um so that's something that i picked up that i've been reading in the last oh. six months i jm curtsy is that how to, how to say his last name i must confess this is terrible to admit i love that because you're a former bookseller and i'm a current bookseller and neither of us know that's how i would say it but whether that's yeah we'll get we'll go with that his work was really and has been really important because he writes, I guess we would call it a trilogy. I mean, he's, he's written many titles, but uh, writes about about boyhood um, mm. and about coming of age. Discovered Ian McEwan for the first time as of late. Uh, uh, read the title Amsterdam, which... Oh, yes. What an, yeah, yeah. What an extraordinary writer. And the last I'll say is um, Lauren Graf, who's an American writer, um, her novel Fates and Furies, which I love because it also a lot of it took place in in New York City. I, so I, when I'm looking for new things to read, for me, what like initially pulls me in is the voice on the page, and then uh, if there is subject matter that's similar to what I'm interested in mm. writing about, that's kind of a perfect marriage for me. That's what sort of initially draws you in. It sounds like you've got a great, uh, I don't know, a great collection there. And how, how are you finding the the Doris Lessing? It is outside of my pay grade, I, I will say. Uh, well, I, I, so <laughs> so I, I also, I felt this with, and this might, hope this isn't a controversial point, but I think Middlemarch is probably the best book ever written. Like I can't think by George Eliot. George Eliot, yeah. Just on a sentence level, I couldn't believe how decadent uh, the sentences are, and mm. the reason I I thought of Middlemarch when you asked me about Doris Lessing is because I feel when it comes to 
the level of craft that Lessing and, for instance, George Eliot were working with is so above my abilities. And this goes back to what I was saying of have building that muscle to teach myself how to, how mm. to read. And so there's a part of me with Middle March or with the gold that wants to just sit. And you hear people talk about like, for two weeks, I, I didn't move off the sofa yeah. and I was swept away. I wish I could do that, but I take in a paragraph or so of, of some of these sort of classic titles. And then I'm like, I am so satiated. I don't know what to do with myself. I need to go for a walk or something and come back to this. So that's that's been my journey with uh, with the Golden Notebook. Yeah. And it, it's uh, the Middle March, bringing up Middle March, that's interesting because um, not too long ago, I bought a copy of Middle March because I thought, oh, I should read some more of the kind of the classics, you know, just to, you know, just try them out. And Middle March, for some reason, I thought, that seemed like the one for me and I, i'm in a similar story to you i'm reading it quite slowly i'm sort of digesting it bit by bit but i must agree from the early parts that i've read it really just yes stands out as again very human very humorous i was really struck by how funny it is hysterical and the, mm. and, the and like the commentary on the mores and and the and the social norms and and marriage and why why and sort of this devotion to, to higher thinking and, and, mm. and spiritual thought and, and the criticisms of that. Yeah, it's, that's what I'm saying. Like, to use a canned phrase, like, George Eliot holds no punches. Like, mm. she's going for them all, you know? And I, yeah. I, I, I just admire that so much. And I think, yeah, and I, I think it's not, it's not controversial to say. I mean, I think it was, yeah, Virginia Woolf who said, you know, I think she called it the only serious novel that's been written in English, her opinion was that before her contemporaries, that that was the only the only thing that was worth reading was Middlemarch by gave George Eliot. Wow. Yeah, I mean, what a what a compliment to receive. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you share you share that opinion with um, um, Virginia Woolf. So you're in good company. You're in yeah, absolutely good company. And if you want apologies, if you have seen this, but every time I hear. Doris Lessing's name, I always have to recommend if people haven't seen it, the video of her learning that she's won the Nobel Prize because it's very funny. It's, uh, it's okay. I'm going to make it's sure very remember funny. to remember it's, it's on YouTube. Yeah. She's getting out of a taxi with, her, I think her son, they've just gone to get food somewhere in London and it's not the reaction the reporters were expecting at all. At all, she had no time for yeah. So it's yeah, a good. I won't yeah, I won't mm. spoil it. But yeah, it's a it's a funny video. She was a, a bit of a character, I feel. And yes, so in terms of reading, then also yeah, it seems quite broad. It seems like you know some people kind of stick to an area in terms of reading, but it sounds like you're a sort of an omnivore in terms of what you read. And one final question, which is a bit, I always find it's a bit of a mean one. Is there one book that you feel, and may, maybe it's the Patti Smith that you've already mentioned, but it, is there one book for you that you feel really impacted you in ways that, uh, you know, any other book hasn't? Or maybe it's Middlemarch. I mean, you've already, yeah, attested to your love of, of Middlemarch. I will. I, I'm so glad you returned to this question because I think when I discovered uh, Caleb Azuma Nelson and his, mm. and his work and when, when Open Water came out, Again, I feel like I've belabored this point about um, how much sort of lyricism and, and language that's done well, what that does to me. But also 
you know, this, this story in particularly in, in, in open water that I guess growing up, even though I wasn't a reader, I had friends who were readers. And when I would see what they were carrying in their book bags, or I never came across somebody that um, looked like the characters that are in open water. Um, I, never, I didn't come across that kind of literature and told in that kind of voice. So I think almost like in a spiritual sense, that book let me know that what there is no like parameter. I'm, I'm sure in the publishing world, this might continue to be the case still uh, for many, but I think the way Caleb writes and, and what that book means for, for readers, it's a great, for me, continues to be something to return to anytime I'm feeling timid about the things that I want to write about. I think there's an importance to tell stories that even if you haven't seen them reflected back to you in, in as we call it, the, the literary can. Absolutely. And I, I think I can imagine maybe as a writer, it's tempting to, you know, the publishing industry, you know, whether we like it or not, is a market. And so therefore we'll have certain behaviors or certain patterns it will fall into. And I can imagine it's tempting to go, well, because I haven't seen anything like this yet, there's no room for that. But I think what many writers prove is that there is room, you just have to make it. And some stories kind of pierce through that pattern and they, they can have that impact of suddenly you're seeing that represented there or, or that story being reflected back. Yeah, it's the, the, I, I, I was actually just thinking about this yesterday. I was admiring and appreciating both what the, you know, the publish my editors have allowed for. And I was also marveling at my willingness. I remember there was a point where, you know, part of the uh, part of I will greet the sun again takes place in Iran and in, in Isfahan in particular. And I remember at one point thinking, there's no way they'll let me get away with this. Like a young person telling a story about, you know, present, you know, kind of contemporary mm. Iran. Usually the narrative is about, you know, it's either a historical text or somebody quite older looking back and writing about the revolution or, you know, but for, a young person to be plopped in Iran and then to just describe what that's like. Yeah. To the, like I said, just yesterday I was, I was marveling that I was allowed to do that. And I'm so grateful for that because it obviously means, it means the world to me to just to be able to share what it's like to be in Iran as a young person you know, in the contemporary day. Yes. And actually that, that links to, you know, something I wanted to talk about because I feel, you know, uh, with those um, scenes, you know, set in Iran, which are, you know, so beautifully done. I think something that really struck me with your writing is I get a real sense of the kind of atmospheres, the climate, the kind of, I say the natural world, but I also mean the built world as well in terms of buildings and things like that. But the landscape of both the American settings, but and but also the Iranian ones as well. But something that really struck me is I feel Iran is a country that I've read about, you know, for instance, in a, a couple of nonfiction books and things like that. But in terms of, you know, a literary introduction to it, this felt like a first for me. But obviously, I mean, from my limited experience, you know, I'm aware that, you know, there's a great history of Persian literature. So, but just in terms of, you know, the the kind of literary landscape, that felt like a first for me. And it felt very refreshing to see a firsthand kind of depiction of that. 
Yeah, well, thank you, thank you for saying that because in a way, I, and, I, and you raise an interesting point, there is uh, so much, I guess we'll call it like classical literature or, or poetry. I mean, Hafiz and we call him Molana, but Molana, but uh, Rumi, you know, there's, there's mm. all, of course, there's like, there's no shortage. So I'm not, mm. not going to sit mm. here and say I'm, I'm the first, you know, but it, there was this great kind of sense of taboo to insert myself into so much context. Again, whether we're talking about classical poetry or, or we're talking about even all the headlines on media or, or yeah, nonfiction books about the, the Shah or the regime or, you know, CIA's involvement in, in Iran in the 40s and 50s, but to come into it. And of course, as the writer, I have that context, but Kay, the narrator, outside of things he picks up on, you know, he's very sensitive, of course, and, and perceptive, but outside of that, to him, it's just that it's just another playground, you know, mm, it's, mm. or, you know, another city that he's with, you know, that he's in with his brothers and his father and uh, has a lot of value and, and meaning for it. But that's where the kind of taboo for me uh, came in because it's to describe a place when it's so politically fraught, but to do it from a child's point of view, to me, felt really like subversive in a, in a, in a beautiful way. No, absolutely. I would agree. I would say, depending on the narrative attached to a place, some places are sort of almost denied beauty. They're denied the ability to talk about, you know, every every country will have its kind of beautiful landscapes. It's, you know, and places to see. And because you're seeing it through a child's eyes, you know, we share with them in the swimming or the viewing of the bridge at sundown, you know, we share those experiences with them. And um, yes, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's not fair to say, but I feel, yes, we're seeing, you know, a place depicting its kind of, it, it, its beauty. And that felt, yeah, that felt very important and very refreshing. And I, and I really, I really believe this. I think as you, as you said, like when there's, there's a place that's so, or, or, or even any group of individuals, any part of a certain class, a certain race, I, I think when there's so much narrative that's been drilled into us, to your point, we're not able to see the beauty. We also aren't afforded to see the ugliness because it's, there's just so much we, we're, we're told how we're supposed to think and feel. Mm. And, and I bring that up because there's, you know, this Haju bridge, as you said, in, in Isfahan, there's the boys getting to be with their, with their hala, with their aunt and get to go to, to Northern Iran, which, but then there's also, you know, the pollution in the air. Uh, the boys are disgruntled and irritated by the fact that everybody seems to just want to pray and then take a nap, you know, the elders. And, and I think that was also really important to me to give the narrator the privilege to, to see things and describe things that are unsettling to him in mm. addition to the things that are inspiring and moving. Absolutely. And in terms of, you know, earlier we talked on, you know, you, you saying that in some way the story has been with you for sort of a few years, but really it's kind of been there, you know, very early on. But in terms of your approach, you know, you have this, you have this first person narrative and you have this journey to Iran and back again, you know, all of these elements, their decisions. And, and when approaching this, you know, did you have the kind of the novel as we see it now there in that shape or were there things that surprised you or things that, that came about during the process? Oh, that's a great question. 
there's so much that happens in the book, right, Jack? Or maybe not so mm-hmm. much that happens, but there's just like these pivotal moments and and both in the lives of the characters internally, but then but then externally as far as world events. And I think I I wanted to it 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 sort of started with this voice of this of this narrator and as I, as a writer, gained confidence and courage, I guess an interesting note to share is that the book started off as nonfiction. That's what I had gone to study. Um, but there was this moment where the narrator was describing something that hadn't happened in my life. And so I was, I paused because that's not, that's not nonfiction. You don't, you don't make things up in nonfiction. I don't know where this thought came from but i but i thought to myself well what if i just let him tell me or show me what he wants Mm. which was a terrifying prospect because i wasn't sure what it even means to write a novel Mm. how to structure a novel what ingredients are needed to make a novel what a novel is and but i trusted to go where he wanted to go and and that's where the book really expanded and and became much more elliptical I, i think in the sense that it was no longer, quote unquote, my story. Mm. I was just the person penning it. You know, I was just the, the laborer, so to speak, which was a very thrilling and, as I said, terrifying prospect. But I'm, I'm glad that that's the way it all ultimately worked out. Absolutely. And what an exciting, I don't know, what an, an exciting and sort of beautiful moment to kind of think that you're going down you know one way going down the kind of non-fiction route and you've you know you can basically see the kind of the journey ahead of you that's exactly it you have it all mapped out yeah yeah and then someone grabs your hand and go actually no we're going off this track and we're going down here and you have no idea where that that will lead to this very day like i don't yeah i maybe i need to make that part of my my gratitude prayers every morning because there's no like with with my bio it's like very evident you know this is a very heavily autobiographical novel and pulls from my lived experiences and yet the narrator k gets to experience things and makes choices in his young life that at that age i would have never i didn't have the opportunity to experience and so when i say it's unbelievable that that happened is like i got to remake the past you know rather than mm. sit there and, and rewrite it you know and that there's there's a lot of value in that of course and a lot of great memoirs but for me ultimately i think what needed to happen was for me to to go where he wanted to go and it you know it's the, what's interesting about that as well is i feel i can actually think of a, another novelist that we've had on the podcast this season of a very similar experience started writing what they thought would be nonfiction, and then found themselves going into the realms of fiction, which I I really love hearing about because I think we have, because we think in terms of when you walk into a bookshop, you have the nonfiction section over here and you have fiction over here. We think of a kind of a hard line between them, almost like the divide of a bookshelf itself. But of course, as with anything creative, that's not how it works. It's a kind of a spectrum. And as you, you know, attest to, you can find yourself having wandered into that ground without realizing that you even passed a, a threshold really or, or, or once you have you know you're already on that side 
I'm aware as well for our listeners, we sort of talked around, I will greet the sun again. But let's say you're back in the bookshop that you're working in, that you've got the very hard task of the book that you've pulled off the shelf to recommend to someone or to tell someone about is your own book to that customer. What, what would you say to them? What, what oh, are you telling them so about cruel, the story? You're so Jack. Yeah, it's, it's mean <laughs> of me, isn't it? It's a really, really horrible task. <laughs> yeah, because there is like, as earlier, as I said, there's so many events and moments, critical moments. So, uh, you know, uh, it's hard to sort of describe the book in the kind of traditional way we, you know, some of us do as far as like pointing to plot. But if I was in a bookstore, if I was back at that bookstore where I work and somebody came in and said, I'm looking for a book that you've read that you really enjoyed, do you have any recommendations? And if I were to pull, I will greet the sun again from the shelf. I think I would describe it in the way that I've described these other books that have meant a lot to me, which is that it may be outside of your lived experience, um, but there's a there's an authenticity and a warmth and and a longing from the, not only the narrator but also the other characters that could be very comforting. If nothing else, you'll get to you'll get to live in a in a world that is perhaps very different from yours. Um, and I think there's a lot of value in that. Lovely. You that would, would be my that, elevator pitch, uh, Jack. That would be your like, elevator yeah. pitch, yeah. You'll get to live in a world other than yours. Yeah, but it's, what we all yeah, want. that would work. That would work on me, yeah, if I was um, in the bookshop. One thing I want to talk about, actually, is you mentioned earlier that poetry is a, a, a big love of yours as well and that you, you read poetry. And one thing that really struck me about the novel is... Um, a lot, as you said yourself earlier, a lot happens in it. You know, it, it's a novel that's well sort of populated and, and many sort of major events happen in it. You know, it's a slim volume and yet so much happens in it. And yet the prose is, is not rushed. You know, we're not rushed through the story. It sort of gently flows while at the same time, you know, we we experience so much in it. You know, your attitude to language um, would you say is is influenced by poetry, which I feel is kind of sparse, but always very very powerful. Yeah, when I when I especially when I had gone um, to do the MFA and, and study writing and had taken a few poetry classes and was and was introduced to different working poets. To your point, I don't want to say all poets do this, but certainly the ones that I have read and gravitated towards there seems to be this desire and insistence to deal with to confront and to inhabit life's biggest themes and yet to do it on the page as economically and gracefully and beautifully and uniquely as possible which is an undertaking that i have immense admiration for and that and that affects me very deeply um, I mean, we talked about the sentences in Middle March and how I have to take a pause as I, you know, even between paragraphs, and I and I feel that with with poetry as well. Is I'll, I'll read a poem and I'll really sit with it, and it, it will, in a way, haunt me um, for days. Uh, and I just feel like I'm a closeted poet. Um, I'm describing myself as of late, and um, and I, I think that's what I tried to bring to the to the novels is dealing with very big themes, um, but doing it in a way that honors the language of the narrator. 
Wonderful. And for, for our listeners, would you mind sharing a, a segment from I Will Greet the Sun Again? I, I think uh, San Francisco was, was listening to us because uh, the sun has just emerged from beneath oh. the clouds. Oh, wonderful. Saying, okay, Don't that's call a me good... grim, you asshole. So <laughs> the sun has arrived. So this is just a very short portion, and uh, it's uh, Kay and, and his best friend and his closest friend, uh, Johnny. It's too hot to be inside, and we're too lazy to move, so Johnny and me sit outside in the shade, leaning back and cracking up, doing nothing at all. Still, unlike in class where time feels stuck, with Johnny it goes by so fast. Before we know it, the day is over, the sun long gone, and we still haven't eaten. So we go searching for loose change in the cushions of his mom's sofa, coming up with just enough to get ourselves an order of KFC's best new thing. One side of barbecue sauce, one ranch, passing between us the tiny paper box of popcorn chicken, taking our time, savoring each bite. But tonight after we eat, instead of going inside, I tell Johnny we should walk over to the wash. It's been years since we've gone back. Two days straight and there's been all this rain, so while it's still full, I tell him, I want to sit by the river. He knows I don't own a jacket, never have, and he pretends he doesn't have one either. Just in our t-shirts and jeans and we walk to Bassett Street, a few blocks down, then crawl underneath the fence. We sit together on the cracked concrete slope of the LA River, sitting alone with the moon as it lights up the stream below us, the water dark green, almost black, the highest and deepest I've ever seen it. High enough for us to dive in head first, if we wanted to. John is sitting close enough so that our shoulders are touching, far enough for there to be enough space so it can happen. All it'd take is for me to tilt my face toward his, tilt it just the tiniest bit. He's older and he knows how this is supposed to go, but I don't. Instead, just imagining how it'd feel the hairs above his lip prickling against mine, his hot breath. Thank you so much for that beautiful reading. That unfortunately brings us to the end of our conversation. But Kashaya, thank you so much for joining us. I will greet the sun again. It will be available at Mostly Books in our shop or online or from wherever you source your books from. Thank you so much for joining us. Jack, this was so much fun. Thank you. Our absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who has been listening in on this season of Mostly Books Meets. Unfortunately, that is the last episode for this season and for 2023. But be sure to keep a lookout next year for the next season. Thank you so much. Mostly Books Meets is presented and produced by the bookselling team at Mostly Books, an award-winning bookshop located in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. All of the titles mentioned in this episode are available through our shop or your preferred local independent. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our previous guests, which include some of the most exciting voices in the world of books. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Mostly books.